HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comporto. <clears throat> that was my Bobby impression. Hey guys, how's it going? Um, hope everyone's hanging in there. And uh, it's getting hot out there temperature-wise and also emotionally. Um, crazy times. But as we're going to discuss in today's episode in detail, that really crazy hard times um, is whether we like it or not when change happens. So you might not be able to see the effects now of how this time is changing us and our lives and our perspectives and our priorities and our outlook, but um, I guarantee it is. So today on the show, we are joined by brothers Justin and Daniel Wisner. Uh, They are amazing. Um, They've been through a lot together, including tragic death, um, both experiencing body dysmorphia um, and uh, some issues with eating disorders. Um, It was such a pure delight to talk to these guys. they're intelligent and kind and sweet. And as Bobby put it in the end, and her and I chatted for a bit on the phone after the interview, um, a real love story, a real sibling love story of such deep care and concern and showing up. And they were so vulnerable and honest as are all of our beautiful, wonderful guests. Um, And every time we enter into an interview, you know, you don't even if you know the people, I mean, I knew Daniel personally coming into the interview, but um, you don't know exactly the turns it's going to take and the tone it will have and the relationship you have with the guests during your time together. And uh, I don't know, I'm always just so pleasantly surprised and today was no different. It was just such a beautiful, wonderful exchange and I felt and I will speak for Bobby in saying I think we both felt really just honored and delighted to talk with them, even though the context was really heavy and sad at times. I, I mean, it was great. I found myself crying and laughing, and it was just a really beautiful talk. So I hope you guys enjoy it too. And as um, 
Daniel and Justin mentioned in the end of the episode, and as we mention um, each episode uh, for the past several weeks and months now, um, please take the time out of your brain space and your life and your wallet, if you can, um, to support uh, Black Lives Matter in general, uh, if there are smaller grassroots mutual aid movements um, in your area, you know, there's a lot of different ways to get involved and participate. Um, Whether it's directly contributing funds to mutual aid organizations, different nonprofit organizations, if it's getting out and being involved in a protest, if it's just talking to your family members, uh, educating yourselves about racism and anti-racism and the history of racism in this country. There's just endless ways truly to be involved. And um, the important thing is that we all find at least one, if not more, each day to participate in now and forever. So uh, we hope you enjoy our conversation with the Wisner brothers. And uh, we love you all very much. And we're thinking about you, even if we don't know you personally or, or can't put a face to the name. Um, We're thinking about you collectively as a group of folks who are perhaps experiencing grief, have experienced in the past, or just kind of connecting to grief in a global way. Um, We're with you and we encourage you to please reach out to us. Listener letters, comments, concerns, questions. um, If you'd like to appear on the show, uh, we're processing podcasts on Instagram, and we are processing at heritageradionetwork.org uh, for our email. So, yes, uh, and with no further delay, we present to you this week's episode. Okay, love you. Bye. here today with Daniel and Justin Wisner, uh, brothers. So brothers is a first, siblings in general is a first for us on the show, and we're really honored to have you guys here. How are you guys? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah, doing really well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a strange time in life, and, you know, it's weird. We, like, love to have guests be in the room with us in the studio and so doing this virtually is is definitely kind of a new experience for all of us but um Daniel we know each other a little bit through a mutual friend so there is already I guess that kind of like connection without having to actually be in the same room but thank you for joining us virtually today (laughs) of course I've been excited since you you uh mentioned it I thought that the idea sounded uh therapeutic and fun and like actually a good way to learn more about my own relationship with Justin and my own relationship with food and grief. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really nice to have you guys on. So you guys grew up in Philly, right? In your pre-interview, I saw you grew up in King of Prussia, which um, sounds like the most fabulous place ever to grow up. (laughs) King of Prussia, like regal, royal? (laughs) <laughs> oh man no it's it's a giant mall uh-huh. um and it's a place where like two or three highways meet uh <laughs> it's about 
15, 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia if there's no traffic, but that only happens at like 3 a.m. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's the suburbs. It's um, It was a decent-ish place to grow up as far as places go, but, um, you know, not a lot to do other than the mall. <laughs> right, right. And you guys grew up kind of like in the mid-80s, yeah? Like you were born in born in the 80s, 90s, yeah? Yeah, mm-hmm. born in the 80s, 90s, and grew up there in the 90s, 2000s. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, I think that it was, it was, it was fun because in certain ways we kind of had, I we had sort of free reign. Like at that point, the neighborhood was turning over. It was largely elderly people. There weren't very many kids our age. Mm-hmm. So we could just sort of like roll around on our bikes and like there weren't, people around you could just sort of walk through the woods and you would never see anybody um or you could like ride your bike for a half an hour and be in a city and like go and do city things so Mm -hmm. that was i think that was like pretty much the best part about where we were what was your family life like family life was pretty good i mean our parents are divorced now but that happened after I was already out of college and when Dan was a senior in high school. So junior, junior, junior in high school, mm-hmm. my bad. But so the, the overall, um, you know, two loving parents that did their best. And, you know, we had a nice backyard. Our mom is a, a landscape architect. So everything is really pretty yeah. in the backyard. Lots of <laughs> flowers and trees. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah. That's incredible. And you guys are both in the jewelry design business. Was that, do you feel like your mom's background in landscape architecture would, like had anything to do with your future as, you know, being in design yourselves? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely could have factored in. I think more than that, it was that mom had done hobby jewelry in, in the mm-hmm. 70s. And oh, so, that's so cool. She just had like a bunch of hammers and pliers and stuff. And by the time I was 13, I had taken, like, every art class that I could possibly find in the area. And the last one that I hadn't taken was jewelry making. And she was like, just try it. How fun. Yeah. Daniel, what was, like, can you tell us a little bit about, like, what was the kind of, in terms of family structure, what was the food structure? Like, who was the cook? What kind of things did you guys, like, eat? Was mealtime a big deal for the family? Mm Mm-hmm. Um... I would say that the the meals were pretty evenly shared uh, between mom and dad. I know that dad did once a week for a while. Uh, mom would go out for... Was she meeting up with her friends just? Or was it like... Where did she, she go? She was going with our aunt to a ceramics class. That's it. Uh, and so dad would have etiquette night. And so <laughs> he would make make dinner... And we would have to like set the table and he would teach us, you know, where the fork goes and don't keep your elbows off the table and like hold eye contact, have a proper dinner. And then um, we would all clean the kitchen together. And it was uh, actually really formative in, in yeah. some ways because I, I have spent like a, a, a good amount of time researching different etiquette uh, from the past and contemporary because uh, I think it's kind of a fascinating, weird thing. <laughs> like it it's is. not really, yeah. It is. It's very, it's very fascinating and weird, and it's into some 
extent, like one of those weird traditions when you look back at it and you're like, who is this for? You know what I mean? Right. Fun, right? <laughs> also, it's also lovely in terms of like the ritual part of it, right? Like, yes. right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's both stuffy and unnecessary and like super cool and ritualistic. And like, yes. I don't know, do you guys feel like having done that? Because that's a pretty unique thing. Um, for especially for just kind of like a suburban family. Like, do you feel like any of that kind of carried with you? Like having rituals like that, like etiquette night, do you find that sticks with you in your, in your life now? Just. Oh yeah. I mean, I definitely, I still know how to set a table. Um, (laughs) You know, that, that has gotten me a job before. (laughs) um, Yep. But I think that like, you know, for me, I was a little bit older and like my memory of it is that like, we were literally driving our parents crazy by just like not knowing the right way to do stuff at a dinner table. <laughs> and like, you know, I think, Dan, I think you were probably like three or four. Yeah, I was a baby. Yeah. So you were really, you were pretty young and I was like eight, like around like seven or eight years old, I guess. And so my memory of it is that we were driving our parents totally crazy because like, you know, either you didn't want to eat whatever it was, or I would get up, Normal. or we would fight, or, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I remember mom just being like, that's it, this is over, we're not doing this anymore, you're going to run the etiquette class, and I'm going to go to art class, and that's how this is going to go. <laughs> and so, um, you know, in, in, my, in my recollection of childhood, dad's major meal requirements were weekend breakfast, Mm-hmm. That he was responsible for weekend breakfast um, yep. and etiquette night, and that mom did lunch and dinner four days a week, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even ish. Um, yeah. And like dad's sort of food repertoire at that point was maybe not the healthiest offering. Nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, what, would, you, what, what kind of stuff did you have? Well, so, like, he would make us, like, elaborately set a dinner table as if it's going to be, like, a formal meal and then serve hamburger helper. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, though. The juxtaposition, the high-low is pretty, that's pretty cool, right? Like, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. um, Dress it up. (laughs) Mom was more of the, like, you know, wild rice and salmon kind of factor in in, in the growing up formative years, but... Um, I think that, you know, both of our parents grew up with the food culture of the 50s, 60s, 70s. And so their take on food is just kind of a little bit different in like flavor and scope. So that like, you know, the sort of the wildest food experimentation that would like happen in a week would be like, Chinese food or something spicy, you know, and it like <laughs> it took until it yeah. took until I was yeah. like in my teenage years to start being like, I need something else, you know, like totally, totally. Was there was there <laughs> great? Still love pizza, but like, yeah. man, curry. <laughs> was there an was there an ethnic influence that you had in your family? Um. I mean, not especially, at least not where food is concerned. I think mm. that the food was pretty, you know, generically grocery store, United States 
you know, kind of regular. I food. mean, we had some. We had some things from from mom's mom, from grandma. You know, she yeah, would do I guess so like yeah. vinegar potato salad instead Ooh. of mayo. Are you guys like? A, she, are you of German descent? Yeah, mom's mom's mom was a German Jew. So oh wow! Okay, cool. We have like some. We get a little bit of the Yiddish slang. We get a little bit of the German food, but mm-hmm. nobody was practicing or cared mm-hmm. at all. So. <laughs> right. So now what I know of you guys, jumping forward from what um, you've kind of told us uh, before this interview, is that you are both, in different ways, um, interested uh, in food. And I know you guys cook together a lot. So, I mean, before we jump all the way there, when when did that kind of start? So, you know, you get out of high school, you've taken kind of some of these interesting things in your formative years. And when do you start beginning to get interested in food and cooking for yourselves? Well, I had, st- I, I, I had started cooking uh, in high school. I had, okay. I had started cooking for myself at some point when I was in high school because I just wanted to try new things. Um and so when I had unsupervised mealtime, I would just kind of like screw around and, you know, make like weird pasta or like try and make eggs in a new way or, you know, just sort of mess around. And then when I was in college, I definitely started cooking a lot more of my own food. Um, and I think one of the biggest like formative influences on how we still eat now is that our parents never served any red meat. Um, interesting. Yeah, they just didn't do it. Um, And so we also spent large stretches of time vegetarian as children. And that still holds over into the way that we eat now. Like, Dan has never eaten red meat. Bobby never made red meat. Mom, you never made red meat growing up. No, I didn't. As a matter of fact, for many, many years, I just started eating red meat. Because I was iron, iron deficient. Ooh. Isn't red meat like a ah. funny term, kind of? And I like that? it red. I like it red. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds weird to say now. It's kind of like a red dead meat. Ah, dead red meat. Yeah, it's it's not appetizing in, in name. Yeah, totally. And Daniel, you kind of got into. You said like your what, your first kind of major relationship, right? Was like a kind of formative mm-hmm. thing for you with cooking. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I've, I've been lactose intolerant my whole life. Um, and, you know, like Justin said, didn't really eat meat. And then right around when I was 19, I completely cut meat out of my life and haven't had it since. Um, and my first girlfriend, serious girlfriend, uh, had very serious celiacs. And so when I moved in with her, we ate gluten-free always and I realized that oh I feel a lot better like I don't feel sick when I eat bread now um and she loved to cook she worked in a restaurant and um she was a big fan of the the kind of ritual of making dinner not necessarily eating dinner but like the 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 prep work and the making and the the kind of like romance side to food when you're preparing it. And uh, I totally bit the bullet. I was super into it. And so we would cook together pretty much every night uh, the whole time we lived together. And uh, she taught me how to 
you know, make food that was nourishing and was healthy. I was, I was, I became a runner when I was in college. And so I, I needed different things from food than I was used to. And, uh, you know, she taught me how to like make a stir fry and how to make curry and how to look up a recipe and like what that even means. And it, and it became fascinating. I, I dove in. Cool. And I, you had also mentioned that you guys both had kind of a complicated relationship in some way with food growing up. Is that true for both of you, Danielle? I know you said that's true for you, Justin. Do you find did you find that that was the case for you as well? That your relationship with food was kind of a bit complicated, um, and, or like body image issues. I've definitely had body image issues. Um, they mostly went away in my twenties. Probably largely because I got married. So, like, you know, I had had body image issues up until a certain point where I got married to a man that I loved very deeply named Christian. And um, basically his whole take on it was like, wow, I can't believe you drove yourself crazy to try and fit this, like, image that you don't really feel, that I don't feel like you need to fit, because quite honestly, if you had never driven yourself crazy, you would just be more my type than you were before, so, like, don't even worry about it, and so, like, I think that that external sort of validation from another person helped me start to work through my own sort of problems with body image and all that kind of stuff, and now it doesn't even really affect me on a day-to-day level. Like, there might be a time where, like, you know, I'll put on a shirt that I got, like, five years ago, and it doesn't fit the same as it did five years ago, and I'll be like, huh, that sucks. And, like, that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So could we just make it clear, like, what body image means to you? What does yeah, that mean I mean, when you like, say that word? Yeah, so, like, um, as a gay white man... There is a certain amount of pressure, when, especially when you're young, to conform to this thin, fit, hairless, sparkly, like, aesthetic that um, just isn't who I am or what I was ever built to be. Mm-hmm. And so I have been thin. It is literally impossible for me to be hairless. Um, and, like, I'm only, I'm only really sparkly on the inside. So, um, so you know, I, I definitely went through periods of my time, periods of my time in my, like, teenage years and my 20s where I was rail thin and didn't love it, yeah. didn't make me feel any better, didn't influence, didn't positively influence the way that I thought about my own body, and, quite frankly, was more uncomfortable because, like, you know, now it's like, oh, great, I have to, like, find something to sit on because I can't just sit on a chair. Or, like, you know, oh, it's going to be really hard to find, like, size 28, 34 pants. You know, sure. like, super, super inconvenient. Um, and so, you know, and that was also, that wasn't just from, like, diet and exercise. It was also, like, I got dysentery and, like, you know, there, there were just, there were extenuating circumstances <laughs> along with it. Um, but now that I'm like in my mid thirties, you know, metabolism slows down a little bit and it's, I think a sort of healthier, more average, normal way to look to just not see your ribs every day. It's just my kind of feeling about it at at this point in my life. So you don't have the same anxiety that you had had in your earlier years. 
about no. that. Yeah. No, it's it sort of it's sort of dissipated in my in my twenties. And again, I think that a lot of that is from you know falling head over heels in love with somebody who I knew was just going to love me no matter mm-hmm. who I who I was or what I looked like. Mm-hmm. It's no, I remember not... when you you. Oh no! Go ahead, Daniel. Ooh. Go ahead. I remember when you skyped me just when you had first started dating Chris and and. The, this conversation came up and you you were just floored you were like why have i wasted so much time i could have been eating so much pizza and you, <laughs> like you, you were just like you, it was totally new to you and you were it was like in that moment i saw kind of um, I'm free one, to be i was me. jealous right i was like yeah. right exactly it's like whoa this is this is not someone healing you this is you learning to heal yourself Mm. Uh, and that was really it's really cool that's a beautiful way of putting it and it's really interesting you know with eating disorders and body dysmorphia and and the like that you know a lot of it can kind of distill down to being like we want to be thin or we want to be x y and z way because that will make us accepted and loved right it's can mm-hmm, kind of be mm-hmm. the derivative there and then it can morph from there into being kind of obsessive or just you know a pattern or something but um i think oftentimes that's where it comes from if i look this way people will love me if i am yep, x totally. right so it's interesting to yep. find like that real true love and kind of just understand that like Love isn't about being thin or muscular or hairless or sparkly or funny all the time or any of the things that we convince ourselves or that society has convinced us that make us lovable. Like we're right. lovable because we're us. You know what I mean? Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of a huge eye opener. And it's, inter- you know, it's incredible that you met someone who made you feel that way. And it's, I think, a good segue into talking about the deep grief that you've experienced in your life. Um, and I, I would love it if you could just talk to us, Justin, a little bit about your relationship with Chris, like how you guys met and then, you know, um, how, what happened uh, ultimately sure. in your relationship. Sure. Um, I, uh, I was getting my, my master's degree in the Netherlands because I discovered, here's a hint to everyone thinking about a master's degree. Uh, I could save about $100,000 by getting my <laughs> master's degree abroad. Um, and secondary hint, once you get that degree, they, most countries in the EU will give you a year to look for a job to help contribute to the economy. So if you're looking to try to get out of coronavirus nightmare, America, there's your way out. That's Um, an amazing pro tip. Yeah. Yeah. So I was getting my master's degree in the Netherlands. I was living in Amsterdam and, um, I went, I was working on my thesis. I was kind of like, you know, borderline losing my mind like you do when you're writing a thesis and like probably hadn't like left my uh, my apartment for an appreciable amount of time in like at least two months. And so my friends like come in and they're like, we're going to the club tonight. And I was like, I got to work. Thanks, but no thanks. And they just like <laughs> closed the laptop on my hands and they're like, you need a shower and you need to leave this apartment. So you're coming to the club. Um, and so <laughs> we went to this amazing uh volunteer run gay bar in the southern part of the canal ring called de trut which is dutch for the bitch um and yep it is so fun 
it's a two euro cover and they have one euro beer and two euro mixed drinks and Amazing. nobody that works there gets paid it's run entirely by volunteers so all of the money that you spend just goes toward buying more liquor for the next week um, and to try to dissuade people who are not students or young weirdo creatives from showing up it only happens on Sunday night and it starts at 9 o'clock at night and they only let in 200 people and after that it's one in one out and you just have to wait if you're not there early so we had Chris and I had both happened to be two of the 200 people that were in there that night and I was pretty drunk I'm not gonna lie there were these two (laughs) German lesbians that were making me go shot for shot with them on whiskey and so I was like pretty sauced and he walked up walked up to me and asked uh long is your hair which is Dutch for how long is your hair and I did not speak Dutch that well at that point and I was like I only speak English and so that started a beautiful relationship um, <laughs> where you know we we fell really deeply in love really really fast um, and I decided to permanently move abroad uh, because there was no federal recognition for gay marriage, so there was no immigration status that he could get. Um, And we moved to the Netherlands and um, got married. We lived in the Netherlands, Belgium, and the Czech Republic, um, and, you know, did a bunch of wild and crazy stuff, had lots of different jobs, ate a lot of really incredible food. Um, And then we eventually immigrated to the United States because there was finally federal recognition for it so uh, we came back to america and after only five months of having lived in the united states he just fell asleep and died and Mm. i never got a better answer than that oh my goodness yeah so it really sucks um it's been four years since he died so i'm definitely still in you know that like initial period where, like, you know, I'm still growing and changing and maybe not as quickly as I would have been a year ago, but definitely faster than I will be, you know, another four or five years from now. Totally. And of course, there was, this, there was the suddenness that made it a traumatic loss. Oh, my God. It was horrifying. Truly <laughs> yeah. really traumatic. Like, I mean, really, like, death and loss is painful across the board. I think, you know, we have a habit of being like, well, this loss and that loss, it's, it's always sad and hard to lose someone you love, but mom pointing out that it's trauma, like true trauma when something like that mm-hmm. happens, it's like, it's like, yeah. a well, it's, it's more than the nervous system can handle, you know, where that's the definition of trauma is that it's more than we can handle. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you were dealing with the, the, the loss and the missing as well as what was happening to your nervous system. Did you feel that you had a post-traumatic stress thing? You know, I think I've, I've only realized like since the coronavirus pandemic that, yeah, I probably do. Um, And and that I think says a lot about my ability to sort of just like, just stuff it down. It'll be okay. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I definitely have realized since, since the pandemic has started um, that I probably do have some post-traumatic stress that I need to work out 
And I've started seeing a brand new therapist who hopefully will help me work through it. She does a lot Mm -hmm. of somatic therapy, which I think that will be good. Yeah. Yeah. Somatic therapy is very good for that. What is somatic therapy for those of us who do not know? Do you want to explain it, Justin, or do you want me to? Go ahead. Well, it's really just a, you know, one of the body oriented therapies where you're really looking at the, the, um, you know, what's going on in the body as a way to understand what's going on in the psyche and the emotions. And you use that um, as a way to heal. Do you have anything to add? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I I would also, the only thing I would add is that um, digging deep into what your body feels like when you feel an emotion has already started helping me pull out other moments in the past where my body felt the same. Right. And it also that gives you a chance. Me, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It's okay. That helps me find the other moments that my emotional self has like tangled together from my past and my present to help me contextualize my feelings a little better. That's good. It's a way to really stop, like because when you say something's happening in my stomach or something, I have a pain in my head. It's that wake up, so stop, and then you can begin to look at well, what am I feeling and what's what am I thinking and what's happening to me? So it's like entering through the body, entering the psyche through the body. You know, we enter in different ways, but that's a really important way to enter. Definitely. I have a question. So you mentioned, you know, it took the pandemic to kind of be in touch with where your post-traumatic stress was kind of interfacing with your life. Um, And, you know, not that that's totally surprising because obviously it's a period of time in which we can kind of slow down and face a lot of stuff. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, I guess my question and point is like, you know, we're all looking at this. I think it's really typical for people to be like, Oh my God, coronavirus! Can you believe it? It's so terrible. It, it, and it is terrible. The virus itself, of course, but like quarantine and, and the like, and like losing all these things that we're so used to. But do you feel like there is a value in being able to have, slowed down to kind of be able to face some of this stuff like do you think you would have been able to face this ptsd if you hadn't had the time to slow down probably not for a really long time you know i think eventually it would have made itself perfectly apparent in a way that i couldn't ignore but um i probably could have continued on for another five years and gotten to the point where I'm just really, you know, tangled up in all my own mess and make it way harder to unpick. And I could have just kept pushing it off and pushing it off if I hadn't had, you know, three months locked inside my tiny apartment with only introspection to, <laughs> to help me yeah. through. And, totally. you know, the the thing that I think probably really set it off was that, you know, at least at least for me, you know, when 2020 started, I did not expect a global pandemic to cripple the United States. Um, silly me. And, uh, and that the, the, the sudden loss of now at this point, it's just over 150,000 people in the United States. And it started here in New York, right? That like so many people dying and there's nothing that you can do about it. And the only yeah. thing that you can do is not see people, not go outside, not do things, not interact, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear your, yeah. wear your mask, wear a mask, everyone. <laughs> wear a mask. Um, 
it made me sit back and realize that, you know, four years ago, I had someone just suddenly completely removed from my life in a way that now I think a lot more Americans will understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and when yeah. it happened at the time, as a as a 28 year old, you know, it was exceedingly uncommon for someone in my age group to have had a spouse who is dead. And I found that the only people that I could really talk to that ever like even a little bit understood what I was feeling were like 75 year old widows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like suddenly I had like so much more in common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's alienating, but it's also unifying. And I think it's interesting just, you know, in terms of the pandemic and also of your loss of your husband in general, like change does not come up about in the way we want it to. Right. So it's like, having Mm -hmm. the time to process this terrible, horrible tragedy that happened in your life, like, you know, and having it be like during a global pandemic, I think like a lot of us can kind of unify around that like theme, which I think people who have experienced grief and really terrible times can understand much more, much more, um, you know, in a much more significant way that like change just doesn't happen how we want it. You don't get to say, well, I'm going to take a two week vacation to Hawaii and lie in the sun. And that's when I'll have my aha moment. Right. Like it just, right. your real change happens. Right. Like in well, the that's the ex- external change. Right. You know, right. one of the things I'd like to bring up, what we're talking about is what I call the well of grief and the well of trauma and all our losses fall into the same well and all our traumas fall into the same well. So when mm. you were experiencing what we are now in our, in our world, it's tapping into our other traumas and our other losses and our fear that's in there. And, you know, so I think it's such a deep well. Definitely. Daniel, what was your, I know you, you guys as brothers are extremely close and I want to talk more about that in a little bit and what Mm -hmm. your current relationship is like, but um, I'm just curious to know, like, how did uh, Chris's death affect you? Like how, what was your grief like surrounding this and, and including like, you know, being there for someone who you're so uh, close with, a sibling or, um, you know, a spouse or whatever, like, there's, um, I, I don't know what you would call this mom, but, you know, absorbing some of their grief and like figuring out how to be there. Totally. For like how, what was that experience like for you? Um, well, so I was living at uh, our mom's house. I just left, uh, I worked at the Vermont Studio Center for a year, and so I just left and I came home. And uh, it was right around the same time that Justin and Chris had come back to the States. And they were living maybe like, I don't know, 15, 10-minute drive away in an apartment. Um, and so we saw each other regularly. And like for the first time, I had my brother back uh, after four years of living abroad. And uh, that was really when we got super close was when he wasn't there. Um, we would Skype all the time and I went to visit once and that's when I actually first met Chris. Uh, they were living in a very tiny apartment and I got a little drunk and don't remember most of the trip, but, um, (laughs) Amsterdam, yeah, Yeah, right. Amsterdam, yeah, Amsterdam, Amsterdam. Um, so we all hung out a lot and I got to know Chris really well and, and he was, a hundred percent a part of the family. Um, and 
he was like a brother and in a lot of ways um, because he was quite an anxious person in moments and I am as well. And so we, we bonded over strange things. Um, he was very active and was a runner and he worked out all the time. And um, so we, we had a lot in common and that day, I remember Justin stopped at the at mom's house and um you know said hi ho after work and then headed over to the apartment and we got a phone call and i heard mom scream in a way that i never need to hear again mm. and the next week was um blind in a lot of ways it was it was sensory overload um, we had people come to the house from all over the country and it, I, I kind of immediately took, um, a caretaking role. Um, um, everybody did. Um, but I, I was like the, okay, we're gonna make food. Okay. Somebody brought this. I need to go get that. Uh, are you out of cigarettes? Um, and so it was autopilot for at least a week, if not two weeks, mm -hmm. and didn't check in to what was going on in my brain. It's a um, numb phase because... for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Justin was the priority. And um, right after that, uh, we have a family house on our dad's side uh, up in Vermont, right on Lake Champlain. And it's rustic our great-grandfather built it um you cannot drink the water but it is a home and we love it um and so i said okay well um we're just gonna go there so why don't you get in my car and we'll pack as much stuff as we can fit and we'll go and we we stayed there for a month and we're completely alone uh we had a little bit of a visit um but it it switched the roles of big brother little brother um it's you know justin has always been like the the role model for me you know i started making jewelry because we went to pick up justin from class when i was 10 or something and I saw him working and I saw torches and I saw hammers and I was like, oh, this is rad. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life <laughs> and started apprenticing a year later and have only ever known how to make jewelry at this point. Um, and um, suddenly in the flash of an eye, it was, um, okay, I have to be the role model. I have to, I have to make sure that you don't fall down and make sure that you have the space, the, the nutrition, the, the mental capacity um, to do whatever you need to do for as long as you need to do it. And that was all I, I knew. I, you know, I don't, I don't know grief counseling. I don't, it's like, yeah. um, but it's, inherent. You just knew how to so, love. it's instinctual, yeah. I think into some capacity. Yeah. 
when you love somebody, right? That like yeah. nature nurture thing sometimes just kicks in and you just mm-hmm. like, as you mentioned, you just do right. Because it's like, yeah. it really is a life or death situation in terms of like grief can be so deep and so like threatening, honestly, in a way and scary. And you see Definitely. somebody who you love yeah. experiencing it. And it's like, it's like offering, you know, if someone slips off the edge of a cliff and you're like, I will hold on to your hand no matter what, or we'll both fall off together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, yeah. And we, and we yeah. do it automatically out of love, but it does take a toll. You know, Dan, you, you had said before that you have mm-hmm. anxiety, that you experience anxiety. Did you find that that increased your anxiety during this period of time? For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was, um, was going through my own, uh, stuff prior prior to 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 chris passing i I was looking for work i uh had applied to graduate school i had just had a a breakup that messed me up for for a bit um and um suddenly none of it mattered anymore and i i didn't we so i ended up getting into that graduate school and um got a scholarship to go and so um Justin and I packed up my car right after Vermont and drove straight to California where we lived for a year um you went together that yeah we went together together. we've actually lived together since then so we are on our fourth year living together He's the best roommate. I mean, really. yeah, you're really great. It's funny so that I can cute. hear you speak first before it hits the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like probably how it is like in your head or in your normal lives when you know someone yeah. so well, you like kind of almost know what they're going to say. Um, mm-hmm. Justin, you had said something in our pre-interview that really stuck with me. Sure. I just kind of want to read it back to you and on it if you want to expand. You had written uh, certain foods that I had no feeling about or just like developed a brand new contextual meaning and became treasured talismans of a now past experience, like a portal into the history of my heart. And I just, it made me cry when I read it. I thought it was so sweet and so common amongst people that we speak to. Um, and I think common amongst people who haven't lost someone, they just don't realize how common it is yet. Yeah, they'll know. Yeah, the traditions of cooking with someone, those things, I think that, like, food has that. It's like a trail marker in some way, and I just, A, I want to tell you how beautiful I thought that was. Thanks. And just ask you if you wouldn't mind expanding on some of that. Like, what are some of those foods? Are, Are they pleasant memories? Are they triggering like or you know can you just tell us a little bit about what it's like eating and cooking after having spent infinite time eating and cooking and something like that for sure so yeah um you know a lot of the time that we were in the eu we were pretty freaking broke um you know fresh out of grad school during the greek crisis like the eu economy wasn't doing all that great so jobs were to come by and when you found them they weren't paying what they would have a year or two before um and so we did a lot of you know sort of peasant cooking there's a lot of dutch food that is 
quite frankly, a little grueling if it's not done really, really well. Um, <laughs> uh, like, for instance, Stompot, which is essentially mashed potatoes and shredded chicory with boiled carrots. Oh, wow. Um, very mushy. <laughs> yeah, it's a very mushy, yeah. starchy, <laughs> bitter food. Yeah, interesting. Um, right, and so like something like that would be like, you know, kind of torture if you just had that served to you without any context and you weren't used to that kind of cooking, <laughs> right? Because yeah, like, funny way of putting it. <laughs> you know, like someone's like, oh, we're going to make mashed potatoes and you end up with this weird, bitter, yeah. like leafy, like, yeah, it wouldn't be what you were expecting, at least from my, yeah, from my yeah. side of things. Um, sure. And so, you know, there was a lot of sauerkraut there was a lot of fried potatoes there was a lot of the um you know vegetable protein the ground vegetable protein stuff i forget what that's called um, yeah like tvp yeah like that yeah. yeah a lot of stuff like that or like little veggie meatballs that are you know you can get a package of them for like two euros um and there, it was a lot of very, very, very inexpensive food um, prepared, you know, for literally for like a year and a half. We lived in an apartment that did not have a kitchen. So we were making everything on a hot plate and with a rice cooker and with a water boiler and sometimes with like an iron, you know, like. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That's so, yeah. that's so cool. So we learned how to make a lot of different food in really, you know, really cheap, fast ways that ended up being super, super flavorful. And so, you know, just like buying sunflower oil instead of buying olive oil and like shredding a potato, soaking it in water for five minutes, patting it dry in a towel and then frying it in sunflower oil until it's crispy and making hash browns at home. Right. I hear a cookbook here. No kitchen cookbook, right? No kitchen cookbook is a real thing. You can do a lot with a rice cooker. Um, yeah, it's true. And so, yeah, you know, there are foods that now they take me right back into this moment of being in our teeny tiny apartment with no kitchen and like, you know, doing our best to make food that was comforting and and made us happy and tasted great. And we were partially very, very lucky that we were in the Netherlands because there is a wide variety of different foods that you can just get in the grocery store, which is not true in a lot of places in the U.S. where, you know, you're lucky if you can find a lot of Mexican food even right. in some parts of the United States. Um, and so we were just, we were, we were lucky to be where we were because we could find ingredients to make Indonesian food, or we could find ingredients to make Surinamese food, or we could find ingredients to make French food or, you know, Polish food. Cause it's all just available. Um, but having those ingredients meant that we could, you know, make our own, Nasi goreng, uh, which is like a, it's an Indonesian fried dish that's super tasty. Um, Or we could make our own satay because it's easy to make your own satay sauce with peanut butter, right? Sure. 
Um, so we we learned how to improvise over four different countries because they didn't share ingredients. Um, and we came up with sort of our own stuff. Like we learned how to make bagels for ourselves because good luck finding bagels, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, but similarly... I have not been able to make a bagel again without him. I haven't been able to make pizza crust without him. I I haven't been able to make challah. I haven't been able to, there are just, I haven't been able to make a bohemian dumpling. There's just all these foods that are like too emotionally taxing for me to try to tackle on my own. Um, You know, a lot of people say that who we speak to, they'll be like, you know, have experienced great trauma and grief and loss and like, you know, I can't make X, Y, and Z food. And do you want to be able to make them again? Or are those things that you're, or are you, are those things that you're, you know, willingly retiring because they, you know, passed with him or do you feel like you want your mind changed about that? You know, is that a goal for you or, or not? Or do you not know? I think, um, I think that, when my heart is ready, my stomach will unlock that for me. I fully believe yeah. in yeah. my my body's ability to tell me exactly what I need in the moment, which is the reason why I have like a once a year cheeseburger. Having never grown up eating red meat, it's just there's that one day a year where my body's like, you desperately need whatever it is in this cheeseburger that you're not getting from everything else you're eating. And so I'll eat a cheeseburger, right? Sarah, I think that was a really good question you have, and I call that, you know, the bittersweet element because it's not just food, but it's not being able to go to places that you went together or do things that you did together because it's just so poignant and so painful. Right, and, and at I first don't... it's so bitter, and the hope is that if you don't avoid it and eventually you're, you're called to it again, it can turn to sweetness and it can turn to something that yeah, isn't and like, bitter. But I think the thing is, is that like. I think we put pressure on either that we need to lock those things away or it has to be a goal. Like we have to get that, be able to make the bagel again or go to the park that we went to with our last loved one. And I think the answer is like, it doesn't have to be anything. It's like what Justin said, it's organic. It either happens or it doesn't. It's fine to hold it in, to put it away in a box and be like, this is something Mm -hmm. special that I don't ever really want to do again. And it's fine to be like, I want to try to work up, you know, the courage to see if I can approach it. I don't think, I don't think there's a right answer. I think like accepting that and taking the pressure off of yourself when you do yeah. experience like a really traumatic loss is kind of important. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. 
But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Daniel, I'm curious. So I know that when we were talking pre-interview about, um, you know, different losses and grief, you mentioned that um, your kind of biggest personal loss and grief was your loss of self due to um, Mm -hmm. a long-term eating disorder. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about that, because that's such a kind of interesting way of putting it and, you know, something I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to eating disorders um, and law lo- and loss. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I've struggled with an eating disorder since I was 20. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up heavier and I had uh, body dysmorphia just like Justin. Um, and, I think when I went away to school, I just kind of was like, well, I'm, I'm done being arching all the way back. You know, it's that, that approval from others, right. Is the, one of the seeds of an eating disorder. And so I was just super sick of being, I guess, looked past. And so I did what I had to do and didn't check into the fact that I was doing it very incorrectly. Um, and, lost a bunch of weight and suddenly things changed and, you know, people looked at me and I felt more comfortable being who I am because I knew that I wasn't being dismissed by how I looked. Um, And through that, that process of kind of developing the the eating disorder, I really stopped caring about food at all um, and saw it only as a, a enemy or a necessity um, and gave up, I think, on the romance that is associated with a lot of food, the the memories of sharing cooking or the first time you ate this thing or anything like that. Um, And when I lived in Vermont, I didn't have to make my own meals. It was part of the residency um, care package for their fellowed artists. And so food was provided for me three times a day. And there was not a lot of food I could eat from the prepared section because of my dietary restrictions. So I ate a bunch of salad and just kind of was like, well, who cares? It's the, you know, I, I know that I can eat a bunch of beans and a bunch of leaves and some hummus and I will sustain and it'll allow me to keep running and it'll allow me to not put on weight. And, um, it didn't, the, the, the focus of food shifted from pleasure to necessity. Um, and with that, I think I lost like a huge 
component of our of of our culture so much of our um our nostalgia uh for time and place happens around food and um i i i remember many times not feeling present at a dinner with a bunch of friends or um you know the stress of going out to eat is still very present in my life um just because it's hard to find food i can eat <laughs> you know let alone any of the eating disorder stuff it's like yeah. okay there's meat there's dairy there's cheese okay cool 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 i guess i'll eat uh lupini beans right um, yeah totally yeah it can be really hard i'm wondering if so oh no go ahead oh no just that um yeah i guess that's it (laughs) i'm just curious like i just made a connection and i could be totally not on but like you know talking about circling back to what we were talking in the beginning about like you know justin how you mentioned the validation through meeting chris was really helpful for you to accept yourself um and that love and i'm wondering and i know that Daniel, you had mentioned that now, and I want you guys to talk about this a little bit more in a minute about like your shared relationship with food and cooking at home with each other. But like, was there anything in the way you were able to show up for Justin after Chris's death and inheriting that role of caretaker? And I would assume in some way feeling, you know, validated in your own worth as, I mean, there is something about being a caretaker and being able to, to feel mm-hmm. something and showing up that boosted your image of yourself in that way and your own self-love to connect back with being mm-hmm. to appreciate food is there any connection there at all do you think that's a great question i've never <laughs> i've never even <laughs> contemplated that um i would say gut reaction uh yeah for sure um i justin eats a lot of food that Either I don't like how it tastes or is um, triggering for me as far as a, a ED, a, a eating disorder. And um, for a long time and continued today, there are times when, especially when it, right after Chris passed, where like Justin just wasn't able to cook. Like he just was like not, he, he would forget to eat for an entire day. And so I'd be like, all right, you need to eat food. What do you want to eat? And he'd be like, I honestly, I can't even think about it. Figure it out. And so I would have to figure out how to make a food that he would eat um, that maybe I'm not comfortable with. And I think that it pushed me a lot then and it pushes me still to this day to um, care more about the, the good side of of food than than the bad side bad quote um like he loves um like he said he loves fried potatoes and a common meal that we do to this day uh is sauerkraut veggie meatballs and um either mashed potatoes or or hash browns and i remember the first time that I tried to make it. I failed terribly, but tried <laughs> to make it. I it was it was like it it pushed me in a way that I didn't check into because I'm not 
comfortable with potatoes. And But I was like, well, this is the food we have tonight. We're too broke for me to make anything else besides this. So I'm going to make it because I know Justin will eat it. And I'm going to eat it too. And it's going to be fine. It's yeah. going to be okay. Okay. It needed a lot of hot sauce to be fine and okay, but it was fine and okay. I guess seeing, seeing his need for nourishment is what we're saying, is that you just saw your brother's need yes. for nourishment, and you went deep down inside to maybe even look at your own nourishment in a different way. Right. And I mean, yeah, yeah. like what we were saying before, right? Like change does not occur in the times that we wish it would. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're, it, mm-hmm. it, it happens in these really fucked up dark times often and it's when you start maybe turning and it you might not even realize it happening um but there is a huge thing in being able to show up for someone and to show love in that way and I think you we don't always realize exactly how much more it can help us love ourselves maybe we don't even look at it then you know but it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a profound Thing. Justin, what did it feel like for you to have Daniel cook for you and help you in that way during that time? Like, what was that experience like for you? Well, uh, I think that, like, what you just said factors in a lot, right? That <clears throat> me and Chris, we used to cook dinner together every single night. And it was an expression of our love for one another, that this time was time that we dedicated to making something beautiful and delicious and nourishing for each other that we shared together with only each other, because it's how we, it was like part of our love language, practically, that it's like, you know, he literally could eat two kilos of potatoes in a week. (laughs) Just an inhuman amount of food. He had such a fast metabolism and he like worked out all the time and like, you know, so he had a, he had a really voracious appetite, but he also ate very, very slowly. So dinner was a, you know, hour long, hour and a half long engagement where we would cook everything and then we would sit down and literally we would just be sitting there for like an hour eating food. Um, and after he died, the prospect of cooking for myself was one of the most depressing things I could possibly think about. Mm -hmm. Um, and even now, even still, there are days where I'm just like, I literally cannot cook for myself. I will not do it. And I'll make myself a sandwich and I'll be like, that was dinner because I can't even think about turning on the stove. Like, it's just too much. Um, And so having Dan there and, um, you know, ready, willing and able to make sure that I don't just starve to death really, (laughs) really was a big, (laughs) a a big, um, a big help and uh, a, another true expression of you know his his love for me that you know he's my he's my little brother and he's always going to love me and we're going to look out for each other whenever and he might not always make the food that I would make but when when we do make an effort to cook together we always make something that's delicious that we both enjoy um and when mm-hmm. we cook separately is the time when we, I think, express that self-love a little bit more, right? Where, like, 
you know, that might manifest for me as like, I don't know, making like grilled cheese or making, um, you know, chicken or something. And, you know, for Dan, it might be like the big salad with lots of beans and different kinds of lettuce and, you know, making like uh, making his own salad dressing out of vinegar and hummus and capers and Ooh. mustard and all this other great <laughs> stuff right that like, <laughs> right, that, you know, and he'll <laughs> he'll make himself a meal that, you know, is exactly what he wants to get out of it. And he feels satiated and he's done the thing that is the most comforting for him in that moment. And as long as I know he's hitting his micros and his macros, I'm just like, you know what? Screw it. Even though most of what you ate for dinner seems to have been water. I know that there was also an entire can of black beans in there and like four cups of spinach. So, you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest food fight that we have is salt. Um, Mm. Because I require salt for food to be edible. And um, I forget it. Really? No salt? How he literally okay. forgets to salt his food. Really? It just doesn't factor in for him. Oh, that's um, so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, he'll make a soup and he'll be like, it's soup for dinner. And, like, before I even get a bowl, I'll just say, like, how much salt is in it? And he'll say, oh, yeah, salt. And I'll be like, right. Okay, cool. <laughs> that's really interesting but yeah it speaks to like the different things that people prioritize in food like you know for some people it's like so much more about texture and the way it just like feels satiating and for a lot of folks you know it's more about it's more taste driven but that's interesting that you guys have that difference because it's a huge difference and still yeah. commonality but it can mm-hmm. come to a point where there's like almost a way to laugh about it which is which is really great and, um, you know we do we do laugh about well, it it's usually funny <laughs> and sometimes, i'm sure sometimes I, not i know <laughs> yeah i would say the biggest thing that's happened in the last two years though is that we've worked together when we make a meal to make sure that both of us are happy so like a great example mm-hmm. is last night we did uh one of both of our favorites spaghetti and red sauce and justin makes an amazing red sauce from scratch um and I cannot eat pasta. So we've like figured out the best gluten-free pasta to use uh, in combo with like, okay, instead of butter, we'll use this oil and we'll use this fake meat. And, you know, like we've learned how to kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Hack the recipe. You know, <laughs> we're, yeah. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. incredible. And I think sometimes Bobby, I mean, we can definitely speak to this. Like Bobby and I love cooking together and we have similar taste. I mean, similar taste, very similar taste, but Bobby has certain dietary restrictions as well. And I think like I can just speak for myself that over time I've kind of learned that it's more, it's like, it's so much more about the experience than it is the food, right? Like the food and is the, the relationship. Product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is about the relationship. And when mm-hmm. I think when you, shift to prioritizing that like the really the most special thing about this whole experience is the experience of it if you're in that kind of relationship with someone where like you're cooking Mm -hmm. together all the time Mm -hmm. and you learn to let some Mm -hmm. of the other shit go and you learn to acquiesce and let go and and absolutely and i think like it's just about prioritizing and realizing what's the real value and what you're doing um so at the end of every episode we always 
like to ask everyone kind of the same question. If you could, and we can, we can start with you, Justin. Um, if you could have told yourself something at the beginning of this process, um, and for you, I think it would obviously really be with the loss of your husband. Um, so if you could have told your younger self something in the beginning of this, would you have had advice for yourself in going through this? Mm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I probably would have told myself, don't hold back. Um, I know that I still hesitate for a moment before I allow myself to really feel grief. Uh, and when it comes up, you know, it's something that you literally can't hold back. Like there's, it's, yeah. it's impossible to try and, and not engage with it because if you don't engage with it immediately, you're going to engage with it long term, and it's going to be harder to pick out the source of the feeling. And so you know, working in the jewelry industry, a lot of my job for a very long time was centered around seeing happy people getting engaged, buying jewelry, and leading them through the process of finding the right ring and the right um, the right special piece of beautiful, precious artwork to commemorate their union. And I think that in the first year after Chris died, I probably held back from feeling a lot of things that I really needed to feel in the moment because I needed to stay employed. Right. And if I could have found a way to not hold back, let myself feel everything I needed to feel and still stay employed, um, <laughs> it probably would have done me a, a real service and let me mm-hmm. sort of handle the waves of grief Right. a little bit more functionally. That's that's incredible advice and it's so true and it's it is such a balance especially in our society where like grief is such a tucked away hidden thing. Oh, it's taboo. Taboo. It's AF. so taboo. Yeah, taboo. AF. Um <laughs> that like, you know, we're meant to kind of hide it, right? To go in the supply closet and cry mm-hmm. because we don't want to like scare anyone and it is I think hopefully in this time post Corona, we have a movement towards being more accepting of bad feelings. You know what I mean? You know, that it doesn't have to be yeah. freaking out or happy that bad feelings can exist in a normal way. One of the things that I definitely felt in a big way was that I felt like through the experience of grief, I had been transformed into something monstrous that, that I had intrinsically changed in some way that you know, in truth, yes, I have completely changed. I'm, you know, I'm a different person from who I was four years ago. But I had this real feeling that I was um, somehow somehow a monster now. That there was something, something had, something had curdled or corrupted inside me or whatever. Um, and I think the only other piece of advice I would give myself is let yourself be a monster. What the fuck does it even matter what other people think? Right. If you're a monster now, it just means you're you're more powerful than they were. Like, you have the knowledge. You have the experience. You have become the thing that everyone eventually becomes, if you're lucky. So um, 
if it felt like being a monster at the time, let yourself feel like being feel like you're a monster. Like, you know, every single person that marries someone else will experience this it's if they are right. lucky. There so I feel lucky in the end. I still feel that way. I still feel lucky. I got to experience this deep, true love. And even if it didn't happen over the time that I really wanted it to, even if it, if, if it ended in tragedy, newsflash, love always ends in tragedy when it ends. <laughs> so like, you know, you have to take your love as a whole thing and realize that you cannot get out of this um, engagement with the larger scope of human experience and the and the universe in general without um, really reckoning with the the sadness of being and the you know existential dread of mortality you can't get away with it so um, mm-hmm. let yeah. yourself be a monster yeah. I love it. I love that. Beautiful. It reminds me of the Mary Oliver mm-hmm. quote, which I love so much. And she says, in order to live in this world, we must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against our bones as if our very life depends on it. And when it's time to let go, to let go. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And Daniel, yeah. what would you... Always right. Well, yes. Always, always Mary Oliver. What would yeah. you, what, what, what would your answer be for that? Like, and you know, in terms of your own struggle with your loss of self and your, and your eating disorder, like what, what would you have told your younger self at the beginning of this experience for you? Uh, hmm. Don't be afraid to heal, maybe, Um, for a very long time, I was not going to a therapist, and I've been in therapy now for heavily for seven months, but about a year, Um, and I think for a very long time, I was ready to change, I, I wanted to stop constantly thinking about what I put in and what I put out and remove the veil uh, uh, that I looked through. Everything was clouded by food for a very long time. Um, And I was ready to let go of that, but I was too scared. Mm. I was too scared at uh, the chance of getting bigger or the chance of losing my control, right? An eating disorder is really control. Um, And... I'm, I'm facing it hardcore right now with Corona. Uh, control is, is, is taken from you in many aspects of your life. Mm-hmm. And um, the scariest part of healing is letting yourself heal, right? Like it, it is the thing to do, but that first step is it took me, what, just two years to start the, this process and like yeah said yeah i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it i'm gonna get a therapist i'm gonna get better i'm gonna stop how many fights did we have over just that sentence oh my god, <laughs> um, oh my god. <laughs> until one day it just clicked it just i was like oh 
I'm not scared anymore. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Sounds like there's a lot of healing going on over there with you guys. <laughs> what a, what a yeah, love story. It's a pretty intense household. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool, really intense intimacy uh, in this way that, like, you know, we don't see often enough, I think, with siblings. And I think you guys have had through a series of unfortunate events that you, I'm sure you wish didn't happen with the loss of your husband. But I mean, uh, I mean, you guys tell me if I'm correct, but the benefit seems as though you've been able to form this incredibly unique, intimate relationship as, as siblings. And that's very cool. Definitely. Well, it's been a love story, hasn't it, Zara? It's a beautiful yeah, love story we've really heard today. Such a special, <laughs> amazing, touching I mean, I could sit and talk to you guys for like five more hours. We have <laughs> but it was really, such, it felt like such a gift. You know what I mean? Like this, this hour and 15 minutes of chatting with you guys felt like a gift and a glimmer into a really interesting and fascinating and rich life. And um, thank you so much for joining us and both of you being so vulnerable and talking about, you know, things that we don't talk about nearly enough. We certainly don't talk about eating disorders, especially um, with men and, you know, grief, mm-hmm. obviously the whole point of the show is talking, <laughs> trying to normalize the conversation surrounding grief. So thank you for your time and your vulnerability and your openness, because I think, you know, your what you guys have to offer and had to say and sharing your own story will be really helpful to other people listening. And can you tell us a little bit about your business and how people could find you? Or is there something you would like to share about that, how people could find the work that you do? Yeah, totally. Um, we, uh, as of 2020, rebranded. Uh, our new company name is Guilty Club. Um, and for now, you can, the best way to get in contact would be through Instagram, which is just um, my name, Daniel Wisner. Um, we have a website that's up and running, but it's, you know, needs some work, needs some love. Um, and we, do mostly custom, uh, do a lot of commission right now. I'm doing three engagement rings, which is super fun. I had a couple months without anything on my computer. Um, and we are work. we were working on a, a line of fine jewelry, uh, in 18 K. Um, but with Corona, we're, we're, uh, we're doing something that I think we needed to do from the get go, which is, is really think about, who our clientele is and what they can afford and what they're actually looking for. And so we are um, shifting. We're, we're staying flexible and we're going to do some stuff in silver and we're going to do some stuff in lower carat gold and um, maybe push out a line of, of uh, pieces that a normal person can afford, you know, like yeah. we want people to wear our stuff, you know, right. like and we, we don't want don't it to want be completely to be unobtainable. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, exactly. That's very yeah. cool. Very yeah. cool. And, um, Justin, I know in the RPN review you had mentioned shouting out, uh, black lives matter, very Absolutely. hugely important. Yes. And we remind people at the top of our show, you know, to get involved and, and donate. So we fully support that along with you and we'll mention in our um little preamble that we do in the beginning of the show just ways to get involved and donate to the black lives matter movement yeah black lives matter i mean absolutely i i i I think that um especially for a show that is about grief yeah um yes that 
it is unavoidable to recognize the the grief that comes from systematic oppression and so mm-hmm. you know uh donate to your mutual aid funds and your and your bail funds and get involved in your in your local in your local movement absolutely couldn't agree mm-hmm. anymore 100 percent with you guys this was a dream and i look forward <laughs> to when this, uh, things get a little bit safer we can get together and uh have a drink or maybe a snack at Glossary. That'd be fun. Yeah. Heck yeah. I love that idea. Anyway, <laughs> I would love. Yeah. Thank you great. so much for having well, us. Thank you so Take care, much. Guys. Yes. Thank you. Like a real treat. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Bye. This was bye. awesome. Thank you. Bye. bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences